Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. The field of learning and teaching extends far beyond the walls of the school. The way students are taught in a school is defined by policy, research, and practice. My guest today has an illustrious career in all of these sectors. Professor Richard Pring is an honorary research fellow in the Department of Education at Oxford University. He was the director of the department for 15 years. And since retiring in 2003, he has led the Nuffield Review of 14 to 19 education and training in the UK and several subsequent large-scale research projects. Professor Pring has had many roles in education, in research, policy, and practice. His experience in education ranges from being assistant principal in the further education branch of the Ministry of Education, teaching adolescents in London Comprehensive School, being involved with the 1970s in the 1970s with the Further Education Unit and with the TVEI, and as a member of the 15 million pound ESRC Research Project Scope, which is a skills, knowledge, and organizational performance. He has continued to publish extensively on philosophy and education research and vocational education and training. So thank you very much, Richard, for joining me today. This is a huge honor. Yes, thank you very much. So there are many topics that I would like to talk to you about, but today I would like to focus on the development of teachers, yes. particularly in inner city schools in London. So that being an example of diffi- schools where uh, it's a difficult environment mm. in which to teach, mm. and also a situation where not all young people want to go on to higher education. Mm. So the challenges of that. Can you just first tell me what what do you think counts as an education for a 19-year-old? Maybe we can start with that question. What does it mean to have an education? Well, first of all, it's an excellent question to begin with because I think all teachers and all schools ought to be asking the question, what really counts as an educated 18- or 19-year-old, the sort of person when they leave the school? And I think if that question was seriously engaged with, there would be a a questioning also of some of the values and some of the purposes and objectives which schools are forced to meet because of the requirements laid down by the government uh, as to what counts as a good school. Mm. Um, This came home to me initially when I was teaching in um, an inner city London school and the head teacher came to visit 5X, the fifth stream of a five-stream comprehensive school in Kentish Town. And 5X means that the students are challenged. Well, X, X was, I think, a way to disguise the fact that they were the bottom stream of a five-stream school. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of them couldn't read or write or anything like that. And the head teacher said, now 5X, you've really got to work very hard, because otherwise you'll finish school as street cleaners and bin removers and all the other things that go on in Kentish Town. And it worried me because, of course, 
Lots of their mums and dads were precisely the people who were cleaning the streets mm. and were looking after and so on. And therefore, the question was, you know, can't we have educated street cleaners? Bins? Mm -hmm. I mean, people who have a sense of moral responsibility, who really do work very hard for the public good, who are able to do the job in a skilled kind of way. Right. Uh, and given the opportunities, might be able, if you've got really good adult education classes and so on, you know, develop their various interests and so on. So those are the sort of questions. What really counts as an educated person? And we have now so easily gone in our society to see an educated person as one who does very well passing these exams, mm -hmm. um, becomes a good academic, gets to a good university and so on. And result of chasing those objectives then I think that it becomes very behavioural, you know, what have you got to do to pass these exams mm -hmm. well? It becomes indeed a fairly limited examination. You see now, as the result of this limited view, limited in my sense, of uh, academic achievement, etc., how uh, with the EBAC, the English Baccalaureate, which came into being under Michael Gove, uh, with the introduction of the EBAC, because music and the arts, uh, design and technology were not included, those have gradually become excluded from the experience of most young people. Mm. So, in fact, what has arisen from this particular emphasis is many youngsters uh, disillusioned with school or have come away from school successful but denied those uh, elements which really, I think, are essential to a, a full human development. And I think particularly with the loss of music and the arts and drama in many of our schools. Mm, and it's, so, uh, it's a terrible thing to happen because as we're focusing on the technology and, and those types of skills, in fact, the world is moving more and more that we need interdisciplinary work and all yeah. of the great work happening in technology actually requires philosophers and yes. people who from the humanities and social sciences that is often dropped in schools isn't it so yes. at the highest level it's really bringing together these different specialties yes but that cannot be ignored at the at the school level can it no. music and art and philosophy and well also you know the school level also one subject which now has disappeared because it's not on the e-bag but in, is design and technology. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the ways in which constantly for a hundred years we've been seen to be behind the Germans in terms of preparation for the world of work and skills and so on is that they have taken the whole idea of design and technology, working with your hands, you know, as crucially important opportunities mm -hmm. for many people and highly respected mm. for those who go that way. We now have downgraded that. You work with your hands, ooh, that's not really what is, uh, education is about. Mm -hmm. So now many schools now have dropped design and technology, which was a very popular subject in many areas. Uh, and it's not only because we need people who can work with their hands, who are craftsmen, who do that, but it's also <clears throat> it is a particular form of intelligence, mm -hmm. being able to think practically, 
think being able to see the theory that lies behind the practice to be able to adapt and one thing and another mm -hmm. and so I think as a result of a very narrow view of what counts as an educated person we are denying education to a lot of people even to those people who are actually uh, apparently are seen to succeed mm. and so what do you think we what would it look like in your opinion the the best version of what a school can be, a secondary school can be, in helping all students to 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 be educated in this well, way. I, I think I think as a school, uh, or uh, connected with other schools, because mm -hmm. here in Oxford, uh, there was a time, uh, certainly whilst I was here, when uh, all the comprehensive schools would very much act as partners, and if they were rather uh, certainly post sixteen. Uh, at the Sixth Form Centre, uh, um, there would be shared teaching of mathematics, of the sciences, of these different sort of subjects and so on. So I think it really required uh, cooperation between schools because not all schools have the total resources to be able to spread across all these different sorts of areas. Um, one school might have excellent opportunities in music, though that's getting fewer and fewer. Uh, but others wouldn't have but you know why not share that sort of facility so the idea of schools not in um, competition with each other which I think the present way of drawing up league tables and so on of schools uh, promotes uh, but not in competition but in partnership mm -hmm. working together sharing opportunities making sure that all children have access to a uh, a full range of different areas and some will specialize in some of those areas uh, and not in others mm -hmm. um, it may be that some will be really do well in design and technology and move on into that and possibly into apprenticeships uh, etc and um, I've worked in schools where there's a real partnership between local firms and the school where a sixth former for example with engineering and so on will be working with the local engineering uh, uh, firm uh, and both studying in the school but also gaining apprenticeship qualifications with the um, with the business mm. there are different ways in which we've got a broader view of learning and what counts as worthwhile and good learning various ways in which I think all this can be organized right and partnerships and collaboration is exactly what Yes. 21st century skills that are very, yes. very strong in schools and, and, and schools try to implement them. Collaboration is exactly what it is trying to promote. Yes. But very often that's not what happens in schools, as, as you said. But collaboration among teachers, collaboration among schools and yes. business it would be incredibly beneficial. And also with universities, because yeah. in the article that you wrote for the Oxford Magazine, you were outlining the history of the Department of Education. Oh, yes at Oxford University, yes. and it was in the 70s that the collaboration started with the, with the local schools, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and the benefits that that brought both yes. to the school but also to academia. Very much so, and very much so. I mean, the, the department uh, here in Oxford, uh, it, had, it, had, it had developed under my predecessor, Harry Judge, what was called the internship scheme, mm -hmm. but it was very much a cooperation between the university departments uh, and the local education authority uh, and all, the, all the, uh, the secondary schools. It was working just with secondary schools. Um, and that cooperation meant 
that everybody in the department, all the lecturers and so on, were at least were in a school at least one day a week, uh, one day a week they were in school. I as director, every week was working in right. some school. Uh, so you'd never lost touch with what was going on in the schools. That we developed then master's courses part-time here so that teachers who are working in those schools would come together in the department mm. reflecting upon the work that they were doing with the students and so on mm. and uh, cooperating with each other uh, and that was absolutely essential and then the, the, and, and we had as many as 10 students postgraduate students uh, PGCEs those training to be teachers uh, would be uh, groups of 10 in the schools where they would have their uh, common seminars in which they would be discussing their problems and leading from them. So the students themselves were really thinking right from the very beginning at identifying their problems. And in order to do this, you had to create the atmosphere in which those students were able to be uh, think and expose themselves to their problems without feeling they were going to be done down or guilty or something like that. In or which, evaluated for or, their or, job. Or, yeah, that, right. That's right. Yes. And so they themselves were learning through learning uh, how to be explicit about the difficulties they were engaged with, listening to what other people would say to them, making suggestions, etc. And I just think that that was the beginning. So what, what we had was when the teachers would come into the school from the different schools, they would be engaged in that same sort of exercise in which they would be coming out with identifying their problems, sharing with other teachers in other schools, learning from how they coped with those sorts of things. And so, if you like, there's, it, 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 was, it was participating in a whole tradition of teachers as researchers. Uh, by that I meant, and I'm going back now to the work of people like um, uh, Lawrence Stenhouse at East Anglia University, uh, his disciple John Elliott, who wrote a very, very good book on uh, teacher, teachers as researchers, in which the teachers themselves uh, were themselves researching their own thing, and part of that researching it was making explicit what their problems were, sharing it with others, and getting evidence from others, and then going back, trying it out, and so on. Mm. And so I, I would like to think, both internship scheme with our students, uh, and the teachers of that internship scheme, and the lecturers in the department were all engaged in this thinking systematically, research-wise, of the sort of problems of learning. Mm. And in being, knowing that there are always limits to generalizations, that you might have some general picture of what a ch how a child behaves from a particular context, but child X or child Y will always be that, that but much different. So how can you actually build that into your thinking? Mm. And you were speaking earlier, we were talking about your own experience as a teacher in London yeah. and how you became a part of a, of a, of a teacher network that was, that was mm. functioning in London at the time. Mm. And so can you tell me a little bit about that experience, about how yeah. you connected on a personal level? You saw it as a director of the Department of Education mm. at Oxford, but you also saw it as a practitioner when you were a young teacher. Mm. And, and what did that give you, that experience? Because you went into quite, as you said just earlier, a difficult school. Well, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting story because when I left the university, I joined the civil service, the Ministry of Education, 
uh, in um, Curzon Street in London. Um, and um, in and I was after a year, I moved from further education branch, put into a thing called the Curriculum Study Group. Now, the Curriculum Study Group was a magnificent in, uh, thing creation by uh, one of the most brilliant civil servants I've ever come across, Derek Morell, and um, he. It was all part of the policy. How can we enable teachers to be more in control of the curriculum, etc.? Yeah. I was simply there as an administrator, helping this ha to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they created a thing called the Curriculum Study Group, which was more dominated in terms of by the teaching profession. But there were on it also inspectors, civil servants, members of the community, members of uh, industry, etc. But it was a brilliant uh, thing, that the curriculum study group. And uh, from that emerged a thing called the Schools Council. And the idea was the Schools Council, a national body, dominated by teachers, should be really experimenting and developing and promoting different aspects of the curriculum. There were terrific things in the teaching of history, uh, uh, in the teaching of science, uh, in the teaching of literature and so on. Great reports were written, uh, you know, because there's money behind it, national money. Uh, and um, it was uh, really first class. One of the offshoots of the Schools Council were, were called teacher centres all over the country. Mm -hmm. These were under the control of local teachers. Uh, and so if you had a thing like the Humanities Curriculum Project, a great curriculum development project um, it would be implemented through the teacher centers the expertise would be there they would help schools develop this so one saw I, to my mind a magnificent thing which teachers were going to be at the very center of thinking about the curriculum about the teaching of history about the teaching of geography um, primary schools etc so w I when I first started teaching uh, and was given uh, a, a class in an inner city comprehensive school, uh, 5X, which was the fifth stream of a five stream comprehensive school. And I have to say that I have never met in my life, coming from a middle class background, the likes of 1X before. Mm. A lot of them had come up to secondary schools unable to read and write properly. Uh, one, with whom I am still in touch, 50 years later. He uh, couldn't tell the time. I taught him how to tell the time. And he's so he still reminds me of that 50 years later. Um, now, how do I deal with 1X? Uh, with 1X? Well, I went along to the local teacher's centre in Highbury and Islington. And there, uh, there were other teachers who were also struggling uh, with their 1Xs. You know, how are they going to deal with this? And so we'd talk about our problems. And someone would suggest I try this, and I would suggest they would try that. And then we'd go back, and we'd try it, and we'd come back, and we'd talk about it. So, in a sense, we were researchers. We were trying to define a problem. And then in the light of that problem, we came across certain hypotheses. And we then went back and put those hypotheses to the test. And then as a result of that, we'd go back and there'd be a deeper uh, knowledge about the problem and how to cope with it, etc., with these different sort of people. And so I think that this notion of the teacher as researcher, using that in a very broad sense, but systematically uh, identifying a problem, 
systematically sharing that problem in a non-threatening uh, situation and then being able, as it were, to go ahead. And I say a non-threatening situation because if you take in most schools, if a teacher was having problems with a class and then tried to share that problem with another teacher, who knows, you know, the criticism they might get, mm. the exposure that they may worry about and so on. How can you create the climate <coughs> in which teachers can really be, share their problems mm. and learn from others and put into practice suggestions? And that's really what I want. And I think the yes. internship scheme here in the department when I came was implementing that. Because Not they were bringing researchers into the classroom and the yes. classroom teachers into that's right. research. That's yes. right, yes. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what we were talking about earlier as well, because in my own research, I saw the amazing impact it had for teachers to get together in a yes. non-judgmental way and talk about their practice yeah, yeah, and yeah. Sh uh, uh, share ideas and share resources. Yeah. And, um, and research is often, uh, the word kind of conjures up these ideas that are... Yeah overly complex and, yes, and, yes. and maybe uh, unreachable in some situations but really what you're talking about is really teachers getting together and talking about mm. and sharing and mm. not being judged or criticized that's right yes. in their practice because everyone has something to mm. to contribute um, in a profession that's as complex as teaching you know, you've, you've talked about different pockets of really great mm. uh, initiatives mm. throughout time and in different places. What do you think really stands in the way of making that happen? Oh, because it, has, it, yeah. it does seem to be very disjointed and, yes. and schools are not necessarily implementing, no. allowing the teachers to really no. come together. No, no. no. The, the, the biggest barrier to that now is what, what you might call the pervasive influence of managerialism mm -hmm. coming from the top, right? Uh, yes. The um, the from you talk about the the managerial professionals and also the democratic professionals in yes. your book. Do you, can you tell me what the difference is? Well, I think that if we take the uh, the managerialism that uh, I think was really beginning to emerge in the sixties and the seventies, where um, I mean, if you to take the person who used to be an advisor to Mr. Blair in Number 10 Downing Street, um, Michael Barber, now Sir Michael Barber, who was in charge of delivery. Uh, when uh, subsequently he got a job helping to deliver education standards in America and set up a thing called the Center for Deliverology. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it might. Well, it's a science of how to deliver. Right. Okay. Uh, and the science of delivery uh, means that you've got to identify very precisely your objectives, so precisely that they become behavioural objectives. Mm -hmm. So there's a great growth of behaviourism uh, in, um, uh, in in modi modifi behaviour modification. I remember in the 70s and 80s. Um, you very identify very precisely your objectives, your targets. Then it becomes an empirical matter to say what exactly do you need to do uh, to achieve those targets, and you evaluate them, uh, and then you decide uh, whether if they haven't been hit, 
whether the targets were correct ones or whether the means of achieving them and so on. So it was a whole ideology and it was there in America uh, under people like Tyler, Major uh, and, um, and so on, uh, very much in the 60s and in the 70s. And I still think that we are dominated by that managerial language, that people at the top, the politicians, can say, right, these are the objectives and we're going to measure you uh, and it's very important for your school to survive, to go up the league table in terms of high scores and this sort of thing. And that begins to permeate the classroom in where t which teachers have got to say, I can only do those things which are going to enable us to achieve these objectives, these things, irrespective of their judgment as to whether these are really getting in the way of thinking, of feeling, of developing as a human being, etc. So I think there has to be a total transformation of the language of education uh, and of the whole managerial approach. I mean, the same thing is occurring in universities uh, and, and, and all over uh, now. And um, it destroys what I think are the aims to educate people, to enable them to think, to appreciate, to enjoy, uh, and all that kind of thing especially because we're talking so much and not a day goes by where we don't hear about the schools wanting to teach critical thinking mm. and critical thinking being continuously you know a central part of schools objectives and yet mm. the aspects that help critical thinking are are exactly yes. that is, yeah. is helping people to think what is really missing in that what is really I mean we're prescribing to a test very often which obviously stands in the way of critical thinking, but what do you think is needed in order to achieve that? So moving away from managerial language is one, but to dig a little bit deeper, what does that look like in a classroom? Well, I've, I have a, a favorite philosopher called Michael Oakeshott, um, who talked about education as introducing uh, young people to the conversation between the generations of mankind. In other words, if you're teaching literature, you're getting them to be able to be introducing them to a literary tradition, an appreciation of poetry, a feeling for it. You're helping them to understand a novel, to be able to react to it, to be able to want to carry on reading novels or reading poetry, etc. Similarly with history, you're, you're wanting them to get them on the inside of other people's interpretation of the past and remembering that it is a critical interpretation so that you're introducing them to possibly alternative views. Now all that is so different from saying this is what you've got to learn and this is what you've got to put down on a piece of paper. That if you take the arts, you know, isn't it one of the benefits of say teaching music that people can enjoy music? Uh, that they can appreciate it. They may not be very good. I, I, for example, finally at the age of 40, reached grade one in the piano. You know, and I was so proud of it, and I love playing grade one pieces. You know, but of course, had I been put forward for an examination in school, I would have been a failure, a total and complete failure. Uh, and yet, you know, to me, uh, not being very musical, to be able to be able to enter into that the idea of playing and appreciating uh, music to that extent made such a lot of difference. And so I think one's got to say of the bin men and one thing and another of 
of Kentish Down, they too can appreciate music and art uh, and come to see things. They too can be helped to think, uh, to think politically, to think about what sort of society they want. After all, much of the political reforms in this country in the last century and so on were by ordinary working class people without a great deal of education, but they were able to be sensitive and to think and to you know, support political reform, etc. So I think we need a broader view of education. And so in a time when there's constantly budget cuts and constantly time constraints, what does such a broad, open, democratic way of approaching education, what does that, how does that contribute to helping someone think critically? Well, you've got to find the context in which people's views are respected, even if you, as a teacher, or may, may disagree with them. Um, they've got to be able to be encouraged to think and have a mind of their own. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, enabling them to do that is to enable them also to be able to listen to an alternative point of view uh, and to be in a context in which you don't mind too much if a person actually provides contrary evidence to what you've done. And I think those capacities for people to engage rationally in arguments, you know, clearly stating a point of view, listening to an alternative point of view without feeling insulted or hurt or something like that, these are absolutely important to uh, critical thinking things. Now, you've only got to listen now uh, to politicians discussing Brexit to realize that whatever qualifications they've got and exams they've passed and degrees they've acquired, they don't seem to have learned that ability to be able to state an issue very, very clearly, to listen to what might be alternative evidence to that, to be able to adapt and so on. It just becomes a kind of screaming match and so on. So when we start talking about the defects in our educational system, I don't think we ought to be thinking by any means solely of those who are given that system are failures, etc. I think we're also thinking about uh, the so-called successors who are now sort of running our country. Mm. I heard the other day uh, the debate in the House of Commons. It was not a debate. It was people screaming and shouting and one thing and another. And I think one needs to question very, very deeply what is happening, the result of our schools and our universities, and we're talking about, you know, some of the so-called top universities who produce politicians and members of parliament, that if the end product is this way of engaging in discussion and argument, mm. then we've really failed terribly. And in order to not do that, one needs to be exposed to very different experiences, different ways of thinking, well, different... Yes. Yes. Um, which comes through the different disciplines, mm, not mm, the narrow mm, disciplines. Mm. And, and so we talked a little bit about how teachers mm. creating networks among themselves is a very, very critical part and helping to open up the education system to, yeah. to different disciplines and different ways of thinking. So what is one piece of, one thought to, to come away with that you would say that if you can change something that you would like to see implemented in the entire sector of education, something, one thing that you would like to see changed as a first step. In the 19th century, if there were issues that had to be handled affecting the whole 
system, or lack of a system then, they would have something called a, a royal commission. All the major developments in the 19th century stemmed from a royal commission in 1890 and then subsequently 1902 and so on, where for two or three years you'd get a group of educationists, different aspects of the political spectrum, people who have been writing about, thinking about education, probably sitting for about two years and then having looked at all the evidence and all the arguments would actually put forward proposals and those proposals would usually end in legislation yeah. which shaped the system successfully. Yeah. You see the evolution of our system right up to 1944, nearly every major step was preceded by a major commission. Uh, and which would have people from across the political spectrum, which would have researchers, would have professionals, would have teachers, uh, all involved. And they'd produce a report that was thoroughly worked out and that therefore you felt comfortable in implementing. And you could see that in, for example, in higher education. The thing that shaped higher education in this country for many, many years was the Robbins Report in 1962, which again, I think, sat for about two or three years before they finally were able to say, this is what the shape of higher education ought to be now in this country. And it worked, it functioned like that. Plowden Committee uh, uh, and so on in 1967, uh, all that came about. The 44 Education Act followed from that, which has been highly successful until now. We've reached the stage now, I think, in which things are in such a mess that we need now, you know, not yet another initiative, from the new secretary, don't forget the secretary of state seem to average about yeah. a year before mm -hmm. they move on and somebody else comes. Mm. And then they implement whatever personal whim that they've got. So they should not have politicians that power because they're as ignorant as anybody else. And therefore what they should be doing is say, let's stop now all changes. Let's sit down for about two years, three years, and look at every aspect of our educational system, of our schools, um, of uh, <clears throat> the role of the arts, uh, the language through which we actually you know, do things and so on, and then come out with a report that would get general consensus because every aspect has been considered. And pe people have got to learn to make concessions, you know. Um, Pring can't just get what he wants, it's got to be one which has got to be debated, etc. And you create the atmosphere. That, to my mind, is the most important thing that we could be doing. Going back to what the equivalent in the 19th century was the Royal Commission, and now in the 20th century, uh, various major reports that were done. Now in the 21st century, we ought to be going back uh, to that. Otherwise, we're just going to have dispute after dispute going on. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I mean, I could go on, you know, talking to you for hours yeah. and hours, yeah. but this was really wonderful. So thank you so, okay. so well, much. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. And as a final wrap up, is there one thing that you can recommend of, that maybe our listeners would like to read or listen to that you think would be inspiring? Something that inspires you? A book. A, it could be a book. <laughs> <laughs> what a question. One of your many books, maybe. No, no. Um, it's I, I mean, I still think one of the great reports was by the Vice-Chancellor of this university called Bullock in 1975. 
and it was that was after a, you know one of these big commissions and so on called Language for Life the importance of language mm. through which people shape their lives see things uh, um, engage morally uh, or the, come to engage with each other and so on and it can embrace all young people getting them to be able to articulate engage in that kind of conversation I still think the Bullock Report which for many decades really shaped people's thinking and so on and saw the importance of language and English particularly in enabling people to articulate uh, and explore problems and so on I think that was one of the great reports Language for Life 1975 by Alec, uh, Alan Bullock Great. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very yeah. much for talking to me today. Okay. Thank Lovely. You. Thank you very much, Kinga.